Welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month it's a real honour to be talking to Professor Luciano Floridi, who will talk about the information philosophy, mistakes that happen in technology at big companies and bugs and oversights, insights and evidence for the UK government on AI, and what is the meaning of life in the digital world, and many more things. You can find the Machine Ethics Podcast at machine-ethics.net, or you can get hold of us at hello at machineethics.net, or you can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash machineethics. If you stay tuned to the end of the podcast, I'll be discussing my latest four eyes and talking to a company that automatically change audio to text and how well that's gone. I'll give you a clue, not well. Thanks very much. Thank you sure. very much for coming on the podcast. Um, if you could just quickly introduce yourself and a little bit about what you're currently doing. Thank you for your invitation. Uh, my name is uh, Luciano Floridi, and I'm the Professor of Philosophy and Ethics of Information at the University of Oxford, where I direct the Digital Ethics Lab at the Oxford Internet Institute, which is really a department in social science. Yep. And like I just, um, we were talking to um, talking about before, I think this is hugely um, exciting for myself because I'm very interested in the ethics side. Um, obviously, we've had some people on uh, previously who are creating some of this technology, um, but you very much have been at the coal, the coalface almost of the information age, let's say, and the ethics of kind of things to do with data and information. And, and now AI has come back in a big way recently. Um, I was wondering if um, you could give us a quick definition of some of these terms. So we have things like digital ethics and philosophy of information and philosophy of technology. Um, I was just wondering if you could quickly um, go over some of those. Of course. Um, so, uh, yes, indeed, uh, ethics has become a, a, a particularly interesting hot topic. Uh, for everybody, uh, because mm. we read this uh, in the newspapers and because it's affecting everybody's life on a daily basis. Now, in terms of uh, terminology, um, uh, philosophy uh, tends to work on open questions. By open questions, I mean questions that uh, once you have the, the maths, the data, the mm. empirical evidence, the experiments, there's still a matter of uh, conversation, decision, uh, choice, uh, arguments. Um, imagine, say, political choice or the decision to have a party tomorrow. Uh, you may have all the numbers and all the all the details, but yep. it's still a matter of uh, uh, discussion, or maybe with some friends. So, open questions uh, sometimes are about new areas, uh, and information is one of those new areas that is throwing up a lot of open questions. Hence, philosophy of information. Hmm. Um, so, instead of doing philosophy of, say, physics or philosophy of mathematics or philosophy of knowledge, philosophy of information deals with uh, contemporary problems that are open to discussion and deliberation uh, in a way that is, of course, informed by science and empirical uh, evidence, but is inevitably uh, linked to decision choices, what ought to be ha done, uh, what should be done, and therefore strategies and design. Now, in terms of uh, uh, philosophy of technology, this is another area that is very much linked to the philosophy of information, of course. Once mm. the information in question is not, say, uh, the information that we inherited from uh, a book revolution, but it's actually um, the information that is dealt with by the information technologies, uh, then the philosophy of information becomes a philosophy of the digital uh, world at large. And finally, uh, I already introduced this, mm. digital ethics. Why digital ethics? Well, because ethics is uh, uh, the area of philosophy that discusses what is right, what is wrong, uh, what should be done, what should not be done, who should I be, how should I behave? And in this area, which we call normative, in other words, 
know, is the description of what ought to be the case as opposed to what is the case. And well, in this area, of course, uh, the digital is throwing up a lot of open questions that we are not quite sure how to deal with. Mm. Inevitably, these become a bit systemic. You know, they cover a lot of uh, angles and imagine this like a, 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 an environment. So a sort of environmental philosophy for the digital world. Well, that's what the digital ethics is. Yeah, I was just wondering if you had any examples of, of some of these. I feel like the the philosophy information is is agnostic to its environment almost, and then you have these kind of more specific um, philosophies of technology, and then digital ethics, which is maybe more about the specifics of the internet age, maybe. Indeed. So you could take uh, the philosophy of information as the broad uh, sort of uh, umbrella. Mm. I like to define it as the philosophy of our time for our time, because inevitably our time is the time of information. It's not a time of, say, scientific revolution or religious debates or geographical discoveries, etc. It's really, as everybody knows, the age of the information society, of digital revolution, of digital technologies, etc. Mm -hmm. So a philosophy of all this is essential. Um, In terms of specific examples, uh, we can go from uh, something very, very specific, for example, uh, how uh, the the possibility of collaborating online to um, uh, work uh, on a scientific problem, so-called citizen science, for example, or the distribution of the ability to catalog uh, galaxies, which is an actually uh, a concrete example developed here in Oxford, um, well, that raises immediately a question of a philosophical kind. Uh, what kind of science are we doing? Is a different kind of methodology? Can we trust this kind of methodology? How far can it go, this methodology? You see, these are theoretical questions that are addressed by philosophers as opposed to actually doing the actual science, which is a collaborative enterprise. In the ethical uh, side, we have some super classics by now. I don't mm. want to bother everybody. So let me just mention you know, the key words, you know, say privacy, transparency, <laughs> accountability, who does what, where, and who is responsible where a lot of decisions are taken involving also artificial agents. We start getting a little bit more to the needy, greedy sort of uh, aspects of this once we start realizing that uh, these new technologies have introduced new forms of agency so we can close to AI and uh, the ethics of it. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, I mean, that's the sort of thing that we come back to on the podcast quite a lot is to do with um, what's in the news um, and what's happening recently has been obviously the um, stuff with Cambridge uh, Cambridge Analytica. And, and that really throws up kind of what we are doing currently with these business models and, and by extension with people's um, information and privacy and um, data artifacts and all these ideas which are attached to um, how we interface with this new world. I was wondering if you had some, you have some experience with some of these corporations. I was wondering if, if there was something, some of your work that is maybe helping these corporations to um, reflect or, or do things differently. Yes, indeed. I, I've been interacting uh, quite a lot and quite extensively with uh, uh, most of the major players, uh, the, the user suspects, Google, DeepMind, Facebook, Microsoft, mm-hmm. uh, IBM, and so forth. And um, uh, I have to say that uh, I am moderately, and I like to stress moderately, optimistic. 
not because uh, things are going from you know, good to better uh, or because uh, mm. companies are inevitably a force for good. That's not always the case. Uh, but because uh, a couple of points uh, have become clear in these interactions. One, that a lot of mistakes are um, accidents. Uh, right. Inadvertently, while trying to do something that is fine for everybody, uh, things go wrong. Like the Cambridge Analytica, for example, uh, problem uh, was something that clearly Facebook didn't plan. So that doesn't take anything away from the seriousness of the case. But here comes the second point. There's a lot of interest and desire to rectify what goes wrong. Now, that is true uh, across the border. And uh, we need to remember one thing, which I, I speak of personal experience. There is no such thing as Facebook, Google, IBM, Microsoft. There are lots and lots and lots of people working in this environment mm -hmm. under those names. And once you start meeting the people, the different units, the different departments, they say uh, Brussels office people as opposed to the Palo Alto people, etc., you realize that it's a complicated world and uh, often some of the mistakes are due to either lack of coordination, lack of foresight, mm. uh, mistakes happen. So I think that on the whole, both the technology and the corporate world behind it um, can be seen as, as I said, moderately with optimism and uh, with some sense of uh, forces for good. Mm -hmm. Having said that, uh, unless we design and uh, uh, take care of um, the development of these technologies uh, in a sort of intelligent uh, way from a societal perspective, I think the mistakes will become inevitable, will become more serious, will become sometimes irreversible. So don't get me wrong. Now, the mild optimism I have is also joined to a sense of urgency for the sort of solutions that we need to put in place. Uh, that's, um, that's really potent, uh, obviously, because we, we want people to be at least trying to do the right thing in these circumstances, definitely. Um, so that's obviously um, nice to hear. As your role within the UK government's APPG, um, you have an advisory role um, with looking at um, the, these new technology innovations um, and AI. Within that board, are you making recommendations to the UK government? Because I know that um, recently they put out some very positive things that we should be getting behind AI and increase the, um, the UK's exposure or uh, world standing to uh, in this technology and i think they've changed their tune again recently is there some sort of guidance that you're giving on maybe not legislation but um what they should be doing to support that claim or to be more ethical i guess let me be frank and, and uh confess immediately that some of the yeah. things we're doing uh, i cannot speak about but okay it would be, sure it would be just premature mm -hmm. and also without raising anyone's sort of uh, uh hopes it's just boring stuff but it's secret boring stuff <laughs> <laughs> so uh and, and the secret shouldn't uh, uh, excite anyone given the boring uh, nature of it yes uh, but we're not, we're not doing anything at the moment that uh, is worth uh sort of sharing just just premature but in general i'm very happy to share with anyone uh the sort of uh direction of traveling here. So it's not advising uh, mm. uh, legislators or uh, trying to shape legislation, but it's more uh, in terms of informing members of parliament, hopefully, uh, about some aspects of the ethical implications of AI or digital technologies at large, mm -hmm. so that when the debate will happen, when the issues will arise, there will be a, a more evidence-based, more uh, uh, insightful, uh, understandable uh, um, 
dealing with these kind of issues. Mm. Uh, so if the difference seems to be a little bit vague, and you know, what's the difference between informing legislation versus providing information to the legislators, well, um, the difference is that uh, we're not setting any particular agenda or, or any particular direction in which mm. the, the legislation should go, but we are trying to do uh, in the long run, uh, when the project will be uh, at full speed, um, we're trying to provide the basis so that that direction can be set, that agenda can be shaped. So it's just a step before, so to speak, mm. in a multi-steps sort of procedure. Now, in general, uh, just to give uh, something a little bit more concrete in terms of uh, what exactly I would like to see happening, mm -hmm. but then again, I'm the no, chair of the advisory board, so uh, on the scientific side, um, uh, maybe a, a couple of things could, could help here. One is um, we need to move to what I like to call chapter two, uh, in an interesting book on the digital ethics. Chapter one is to realize the problem, start talking about mm. the general framework. Yeah. But we can't always write chapter one again and again. A lot of initiatives just wake up in the morning and say, oh, we need to write chapter two. Uh, yes, indeed. So chapter two is, okay, how do we make it concrete? What are the areas in the UK, in the economy, in everyday life, in health, in security, in jobs market, in, say, logistics, in retail, etc., that are ready for some real advancements thanks to a sense of what's right, what ought to happen, mm. how the world would be a better place if only we had this kind of framework or this kind of rules. So that's the first thing, concrete. The second, I've already introduced it, is enabling. Ethics is not something that simply tells you, don't do this, don't do that. The joke I crack uh, too many times, to be honest, is it's not just about don't run with scissors in your hands. Uh, that is not just uh, uh, sort of a simplistic, it's simply mm. not a whole story. Ethics in this context, would, and there's an enormous amount of things we could do, and we're not quite sure uh, what is right and what's wrong, is enabling. It tells, for example, the health sector, look, this data, they can be used, and it would be a good thing uh, to go ahead and maybe join forces with other actors in order to take maximum advantage of this database, or say, in this particular sector, so look, some trade-off needs to be reached between privacy and security because mm -hmm. there are sensitive areas here. Uh, imagine, for example, um, uh, airports where a bit of extra efforts need to be made uh, maybe for some time in terms of looking at the privacy security balance. So think of ethics not just about a barrier, a constraint, a limit, but also a springboard, uh, an enabler, so that things that are, that are not being done at the moment for fear that uh, we might be doing the wrong thing become clear and mm -hmm. we can step forward and, and do the right thing for the whole sort of society. Um, uh, awesome. I think I can just leave it there and, and leave people with that. I think that's a really good one to end on. Um, unfortunately, um, we will carry on and uh, for a few more minutes. Um, you are one of the busiest people I've um, I've not quite met properly. Some of the information I found on your website, um, you're all over the world talking about um, these sorts of things. How do you find the time to actually sit down and, and um, do the work almost? Uh, <laughs> So um, there are a few tricks, uh, and everybody knows them. It's just the, the, the question is, is to follow them carefully. One, um, being um, surrounded by fantastic people, uh, you know, collaborators, support, staff, etc., that really you know, make your life so much easier. So that you become a bit of a, uh, when you're traveling, a bit of a, a um, package that has been sent from A to B to C. You don't even know you're traveling. So uh, to be... Mm. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it, it's now become a recurrent feature of my life that I wake up on an airplane and I'm not quite sure for a fraction of a fraction of a second exactly where I'm going. Hmm. It just lasts that fraction of a second. I don't ask anybody because they will be scared. And then after that fraction of a second, I know maybe I'm going to Brussels normally or I'm coming back from Brussels. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so fantastic people around me. Um, a complete sense of devotion and single-mindedness. I love what I'm doing. I think it's you know, amazing to be involved in these kind of things. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like a, a kid with uh, a, a toy. Uh, you know, try to get the kid away from the new toy. It's very hard. So the fact that I work 24-7, <laughs> no particular uh, admiration for that. It's just a fantastic um, place where to uh, contribute and be engaged. So, again, a lot of enthusiasm and, and energy comes from the sense of uh, – novelty, interesting uh, stuff that is going on, and yeah. the sense that we can contribute something to send things in the right direction. And the last thing is um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, peace of mind uh, all over the place, uh, family included. Mm. That helps a lot. Uh, if you are at peace with yourself and with the rest of the world, well, you can dedicate all your energy to a cause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, I'm glad to hear that you're chipper um as they say in england (laughs) (laughs) um with with all the work you're doing um i um i'd like to step back a a second and and go back to some more philosophy and kind of um almost science science fiction for a second um what is next for the philosophy of information um you've built up this kind of body of work which is kind of an overarching system almost. And you've put out the idea that um, hopefully you are going to finish that soon um, in the next few years. Um, <laughs> yeah. w- what does that entail almost, the, the, the last section of this um, opus? So I think that um, if, you, if you look at uh, the kind of work that I've done, uh, it, you can divide it into two halves, you know, like sort of this one, which is more uh, public engaging and public facing. Hmm. Uh, and the one that is much more academic, research oriented, I divide the book, the books between the ones that will be read by a handful of colleagues and the ones that I hope that will be read, read by a few more people, uh, including my mom and my dad. Mm. Uh, so, uh, in that sense, the the philosophy of information that I'm developing is this uh, four. It now looks like five volumes uh, that it will be essentially what I've spent my life doing. Uh, the the part of the iceberg that very few people will see because uh, the interesting part is the one that emerges, no, the one for my, my mom and my dad mm. <laughs> and my friends and uh, maybe a few people who are listening, uh, um, which is the, not more popular but more engaged with everyday life. But yeah. that is supported by the enormous amount of uh, uh, submerged research, which needs to be there and has always been that way since the Greeks. So I don't think uh, uh, we should change that. Now, what's next in that direction is... Um, there are a couple of things. Uh, one, for the emerging part of the iceberg, uh, a much more intense uh, engagement with uh, policy making and the governance of the digital. Uh, what I've been mm-hmm. arguing recently for the past year or so is that uh, you know, we landed on the digital world, so to speak. Um, that landing happens only once in the history of humanity. It's like the invention of the world. There's a world before and a world after. It doesn't mean that the digital will not generate amazing things in the future, say in 100 years, God knows. Like the will, exactly. Yeah. But uh, that landing, that moment has passed. It's, it's now. And therefore, the responsibility we have to decide what do we do, how do we want to shape insofar as we can, what design, again, insofar as we can design, mm. we can give to our society, our lives on, on life, as I like to call them, 
Well, that is really up to this generation. It's you know, essentially the generation that has seen the world uh, entirely analog, and uh, that world entirely analog won't exist anymore. Uh, it's now increasingly also digital, and uh, that transition is up to us to decide the direction of it. Now, that's, the, that's why I think that the real uh, challenge is not uh, digital innovation, but the governance of the digital. And that's where the top of point, uh, the emerging side of the iceberg is going to be a little bit more interesting to not look at. Mm. In terms of uh, the, the one part of the iceberg that very few people will see, the research, you know, the book, uh, the monograph, or all you, Oxford University Press and so on, mm-hmm. the very boring but uh, necessary stuff, I like to see that engaging more with, uh, if I may say so, forgive me for a moment, mm-hmm. but I say something really naive, but trust me, the meaning of life. Wow. The human project we want to have in a world that is increasingly digital, how that changes, what kind of hopes we can have and it's reasonable to have, what sense we want to give to our lives uh, in a world that is increasingly, for example, surrounded by artificial agents, so mm-hmm. in which we have anything available, a click away, etc. Well, that, as you can tell, is very philosophical indeed. <laughs> mm, yeah, I think that's one of the oldest uh, philosophical um, projects, I guess. Yeah, it gets renewed every every generation and at every revolution. Uh, the meaning of life uh, in the 17th century is not the same as mm. in the 21st. And I like to understand much better from, uh, from that perspective what we are facing and what we can, again, do and change about it. Yeah, well, I think I need to give you a call in a couple of years' time then, and, and when you've sorted it out. Make it four or five. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, just give us a tweet or something. Um, I've cracked it. I've got, I've got it written down. Yep. You can, yeah, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> um, so this is going to be a um, maybe a quite pointed question, so I apologize for that. Um, you could be almost described as an AI conservative um, in contrast with some of the um, people from um, Silicon Valley or, or Kurzweil and people like that who are talking uh, more about almost science fiction ideas of the future. Um, whereas uh, I, I believe a lot of your thinking is to do with more I would say now, or a realistic view of um, where, where we are in a current situation, is it, would that be fair? I think it would be. Uh, let me let me be very British about this. Double yeah. negative. It would not be unfair. Uh, so whether it's fair or not, I'm not quite sure. Um, I think that is. Uh, I like the word that you use in connection to with it. Realism. Uh, mm. I I think we have enough definitely enough problems with current technologies and any foreseeable so it's not just now it's tomorrow and for any millennium to come as far as we know now so the now is in terms of what we can possibly understand about computer science what we can possibly understand about digital technologies the true ai is not in view it's a science fiction is mm. hollywood so would i encourage anyone to spend any moment any penny on it, of course not. Unless you want to, you know, buy some popcorn and enjoy the movie, um, which I do regularly. Mm. But in terms of uh, challenges, I'm not, I'm not a conservative, as in, um, in the sense of uh, thinking that there's nothing into it. It's just, you know, uh, an electric typewriter. Of course yeah. not. That's totally not the case. But what I like to travel is a kind of middle ground, as usual with philosophers. They always think they, they are in the middle. <laughs> um, now, a middle ground between um, the two extremes, and and thinking, look. What we're really facing here it has got nothing to do with intelligence and it's got everything to do with agency. Is 
a way of delegating uh, or um, empowering machines to do things instead of us. Mm. That they are or are not intelligent, honestly, that is really not the point. Not least because uh, I can check right now, my iPhone in my pocket plays much better chess than anyone I know and probably anyone uh, around me. Mm. And yet, as the intelligence of my grandmother's fridge, um, so clearly zero intelligence, amazing abilities, those abilities will keep growing. There's probably not bound to what we can, uh, at the moment, speculate in terms of are we going to have a machine that no, we design that can do that instead of us, for us. I'm not quite sure. Meaning, I think the sky is the limit. Yes. Hmm. Are they doing things like us? Of course not. Uh, I know my dishwasher doesn't do the dishes as I do, <laughs> and my iPhone doesn't play chess the way I do. It doesn't matter. The outcome matters. Hmm. Clean dishes, fantastic game. If that is what you care, uh, care about, well, that is what we can achieve. The problem is what we want to delegate or not. Now, we can delegate a lot of processes, a lot of uh, actions. Are we going to delegate also the choices and the decisions behind those processes and actions? So I might delegate how to drive from here to there. Whether I want to drive from here to there, well, it's probably up to me, isn't it? Mm. So do I want to go to the office today? Maybe not. Maybe yes. If yes, well, I'd love to have a car that takes me from my house to the office and back. Absolutely. A car that takes me and says, Luciano, you have to go to the office today. I'm not so sure I'm very happy about it. <laughs> can it's... we build it? Of course we can. That's the trouble. It's up to us. So that's why I'm not terribly conservative. I'm very open-minded about the possibilities mm -hmm. and the risks. I think um, one of the things that strikes me about that um, is that it's, it's probably very easy to program a system that makes those decisions for us <laughs> over programming a whole car that can drive itself. That's, it is a very big gulf of, um, you know, we could make it quite a naive program which didn't actually use any historical data or anything like that, which said, you know, go to the office today or, or um, buy some milk or whatever. And... Um, it's it's annoying almost that those things are easier to do than the hard things um, within the idea of computer science or technology. Um, Absolutely. We have to kind of fight against that almost. Yeah. Well, yes. And uh, you know, if you think of it, when uh, the troubles arise, when uh, you have the decision stage, no, hmm. should I or should I do this, uh, whether I should do something or not, with the process that follows, all in a package, entirely delegated to a machine. Yeah. At that point, problems arise. Now, take the um, the way of, uh, we we use uh, automatic pilots uh, on uh, average your average airplane. You know, so, uh, yeah. Well, we've got two pilots there. Could the automatic automatic pilot take the no the, the airplane from A to B and back? Um, yeah, definitely. Are we allowing that? No, because we want to have supervision. Uh, we want to have a plan B. We want to make sure that if anything goes wrong, someone is there, etc. So there's mm. a whole more complexity here than just the, oh, let's travel from A to B. Let me give you an example, if we still have a moment, mm -hmm. uh, about um, uh, the crisis that the industry in the United States of truck drivers is currently undergoing. We've been talking about this driverless cars coming mm. and therefore destroying all jobs, blah, blah, etc. Uh, no, for some time. The result is that people are not you know, applying for that, those particular jobs. They are very well paid. I mean, your average truck driver in the States 
is better paid than your average assistant or associate professor at a university. So mm. now we're talking maybe sixty thousand uh, dollars a year or seventy thousand. So it's it's a good wow. it's a good job. I mean, uh, so it's not a matter of money. Uh, it's sacrifice, but no, there are worse jobs. The trouble is that people are not there. Uh, why? Well, because a, someone who drives a truck is not simply someone who takes the truck from A to B. Maybe he has to open the gate. No, silly example. Or there's a lot of forms to fill. Mm. Or is a double checking that everything uh, that's been carried is okay. Well, your average driverless car doesn't do that. No. So I have my sensory, uh, say, uh, delivery at home. Well, the gentleman, I know him, we, you know, we chat. He double checks. He decides. No, look, this is a bit ruined. Uh, oh, let, let me. No, I'll give you a discount. <laughs> that is all about you no know, human interactions. Driverless car, that would be impossible uh, at the moment. And, and again, impossible is is a, is a loaded word. So it's not a oh, but I can develop a, a robot. Yes, of course, but mm. I can multiply the, the the circumstance in which that would not work. And it's a catch me if you if you can sort of uh, game. The flexibility, the human touch, the intelligence, the the ability to think things that are not there or otherwise. This is what we call intelligence. We know it when we meet it. We don't have a definition. It's like pornography. You know when you see it. Uh, No, famous joke. Not mine, unfortunately. Hmm. A good joke. Uh, Like intelligence. Machines, the machines, they they do what they're good at. Um, Whether they're programmed or not these days, because there are a lot of autonomy out there, of course, and Mm -hmm. that's crucial. That's the real difference. Well, they autonomously develop their ability to uh, carry on successfully a particular task in a particular circumstance. They will do the dishes. They will check the thermostat that works properly. They will cut the grass in the best of all possible ways. And that is it. So the joke is that the same Roomba that cleans the floor will not walk out of the house and cut the grass. Uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, why? is not money, technology. The same way we have a dishwasher and a washing machine. Could you have a transformer moment when the same machine does both? Technically, maybe. Uh, feasible, maybe. Uh, tomorrow, I don't think so. Uh, I wouldn't sort of put my money into it. Hmm. That's the kind of trouble that we have now. So more realism, because we have enough problems to deal with. Yeah, and it sounds like we're going to be living in a, a Jetsons um, situation, a, a 1950s future where there will be lots of machines doing very, very specific jobs, um, but not um, a generalised robot that can, you know, um, like you say, do all sorts of different things for Absolutely. us. Absolutely. And, and, and worse than that, make those decisions. Yeah, just a quick reminder. I mm. mean, anyone should check what we do when we drive the cars. We're not developing robots that sit there instead of us okay with hands on the wheel mm. that is the joke but that is the joke that these people the cool smile of the world the you know, super intelligent people of the world are actually cracking no it's not going to happen that's not the, the road we've taken we've taken an engineering road about outcomes not a cognitive road about process we don't care whether they think like us or not we care whether they deliver and if they deliver we're happy yeah Groovy. I mean, it sounds good to me. Um, if we have the, you know, if it drives me from A to B, that's great. And I, I can have a little nap, um, you know, or read the paper. Um, that's fine. Um, so there's a question that I, there's actually two questions that I always ask, uh, and feel free to um, answer them um, as quickly or as uh, at length as you wish. Um, so the first one is, what is artificial intelligence? Um, mm-hmm. And the second one is, what are you excited about and what scares you about the future with AI? So about artificial intelligence, what it is. There are so many definitions. 
I like the classic one, the one that was developed at Dartmouth uh, when we started all this, and the ability to do things that, if done by a human being, would require intelligence. It's a counterfactual. If done by a human being, would require, meaning that it doesn't have to. To me, artificial intelligence is the divorce between the ability to perform a task successfully from the need to be intelligent. That is where business, too, is going to be successful. You have something that is being done at the moment by human beings. You look at it and say, can I do that with zero intelligence? Because if I can, there's an AI app waiting to be developed. Mm. If I cannot, well, then we are in trouble. So that's why, for example, today we talk about uh, the loss of skills, not of jobs. A job is many skills, but a particular skill can be replaced. So uh, I said, no, uh, the counterfactual and the uh, idea that we are divorcing the ability to perform a particular task with success uh, from any necessity of being intelligent in doing it. Chess included, go, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, the other question was, Oh, for the, uh, the current future and um, what excites you and what scares you? Oh, what, what excites me? Uh, what excites me is, the, is an opportunity to use this amazing technology to um, make our life definitely much better. And I'm talking about um, uh, logistics, uh, retail, transport, health, security, and so on. Um, the ability to perform uh, actions more quickly, uh, more efficiently, uh, more accurately, or sometimes at all, because you know, the level of granularity of uh, timeliness, uh, of complexity such that no one will be able to do that in any reasonable amount of time with any mm. reasonable resources. This is amazing. I mean, it, it can open up a, an entirely new world. Yes, that is what really excites me, the opportunity. What scares me, or I should rather say what frustrates me, is mm -hmm. our ability to seize that opportunity, to grab it. I'm not sure we are going to get there. I fear that uh, we will keep missing this amazing opportunity, for example, in terms of inequality. As a very small mm. number of people will uh, sort of take so much advantage of these technologies when many others will probably either suffer or not touched by it financially or in terms of uh, uh, well-being, welfare, etc. Or imagine in terms of uh, um, covering corners of the world, not in terms of AI and our life, that are not commercially interesting. I mean, there are things that uh, we should be doing as a society uh, that are not interesting for, for a business. Um, and yet, uh, we know that society should invest there. If we keep leaving the development of AI uh, to market forces, it, this is not wrong. It's only partially okay because there's a, a whole world out there that also needs to cover. The example here is a typical case uh, by analogy of uh, rare disease. A rare disease problem uh, is not something that is commercially interesting, but only few people suffer from it. Mm. And yet, now, do we want to have, as a society, people suffering because uh, there's not enough commercial interest? Of course not. That's why we cover it with other means. That's where society is, is important. So to me, the socio-political will to take full advantage of uh, uh, the digital at large and AI in particular that's crucial. Are we getting there? I hope so. I mean, and there are good signs. No, uh, but if I have to express any fear, is the fear of missing the opportunity. That's really interesting. Um, well, 
thank you. Um, this has been extremely interesting. Um, if people want to find out about you, follow you, all that sort of thing, how can they do that? Well, they can do that on Twitter, at uh, Floridi, that's simple. Uh, so at plus my surname, uh, or they can uh, check on uh, on the web. There's also a, a, a sort of follow uh, page on uh, uh, Facebook. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, my personal Facebook uh, page it has reached the 5,000 people, so I cannot accept any more friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's another one where you can follow what, what I'm doing, and I try to be as thorough as possible there as well. Sure. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Hi, thanks for listening to the end of the podcast. So recently I was um, sending a company um, who advertised themselves as being able to take audio and to transfer it into text, which would be massively useful. Um, I didn't know that they were going to use machine learning to do this because obviously the man I was involved in listening and, and inputting the text that you hear on these podcasts is a lot and it costs a lot of money to do, which is why we currently don't have that facility. So this company were selling their services very cheaply and I later found out through the actual product that the product wasn't very good. The translation from audio to text was pretty abysmal um, and I called them and I asked them if they were using an algorithm for this and they disclosed that they were. So my uh, challenge to you is to find me an audio to text algorithm which works much better than this current algorithm. If you would like to get a uh, example of what they gave me then please email me at hello at machine-ethics.net if i could find a solution to this it would be fantastic otherwise i'm gonna have to spend a lot of money obviously getting a audio to text translated by humans okay well thank you very much for listening and stay tuned for the next podcast coming very shortly bye